Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Welcome to Silmarillion Seminar 32, and the third and final week of discussion on the Al-Kalabaith. This week we talk about the destruction of Numenor, specifically Iluvatar's epic smiting of the Numenorians, what of worth was destroyed in Numenor, the connection between Isildur and the White Tree of Gondor, Lost Mariners, whether Amundil's voyage to Valinor was a success or failure, and the surprise connection between Numenor and other mythical lands. Please enjoy listening to this episode, The Castle of Arg. Good evening, and welcome back to the Silmarillion Seminar. Uh, tonight we begin our third and final week on the Akalabeth. Uh If you've been listening for a while, you know that uh, uh, I have been in a continual struggle against the participants in the seminar about uh, when this thing is going to end. They are always wanting me to add another week uh, in discussing these things. We shall certainly... They've already stretched the Akalabeth out to a third week. We shall certainly finish it tonight. Um... So uh anyway last week we got through the uh the bad times in uh Numenor uh our first week's discussion focused primarily on the establishment of Numenor and the decision of the Valar to take the Edain out of Middle-earth and uh and uh leading up to we got as far as the debate between uh the representatives of the Valar and the Numenorians um, about the destiny of men and why wanting to be immortal was not a good idea. Um, then last week we were looking at the the decline of Numenor that followed from that all the way up to Arpharazon and and uh, Sauron's participation over there in Numenor, and uh, we were just about up to the breaking of the band. So um, I want to start um, with looking at not the attack of Arpharazon, but I want to start with. Uh, with Amandil and Elendil. And we did also, we didn't talk at all about Isildur and the stealing of the fruit of the tree. Um, so I, if you guys wanted to talk about that too, we could certainly do that. Uh, John, I think you wanted to talk about, you wanted to talk about Amandil? If you're able to get to your mic there, you'd be welcome to start us off there. No, well, I'll try coming back to you then, John. It's no problem. Um, uh, anyone else want to start us off here? We are actually somewhat few tonight there are uh there we are uh, we've got a lowish attendance here this evening though others might perhaps trickle in as we go laura yeah um i'm happy to start us off since yeah we do have quite a few people missing tonight yeah hopefully we'll make up for that with our brilliance they won't make well they won't miss the other really brilliant people who aren't here <laughs> but um amandil's errand um it's interesting because we don't know anything about it other than he just takes off and leaves. But it seems like, at least partially, it was successful because the, the Valar do seem to um, do seem to uh, save the uh, the faithful. You know, they they create that big wave that sort of brings them to Middle Earth. Um, and it does seem like they're they're separated out. It's not just the fact that they're ready, but they also s- sort of get some special treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I think you know, even if it didn't succeed in that, you know, he you know he doesn't um, he doesn't su- succeed like uh, Arundel did. Um, at least partially, he he must have gotten through somehow. 
um, and, and gotten the message through. So so that that's what I think. But, you know, it's all speculation because it's not in the text. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Which which I think actually for for one thing is, is kind of interesting in itself. So, I mean, even, even before we... We go. We look further into the answer to that question. Just the fact that it is a question, I think, tells us something interesting about this story. Um, think about the differences, for instance, with the story of Arendel. Arendel leaves Middle Earth, and the story follows him. And we're out on the sea with Arendel, and Elwing comes and uh, and meets him, and then we get his arrival uh, in Valinor, and then it shifts back to Middle Earth. You'll remember when his when. When Vingalot with the Silmaril rises, the new star rises in the sky for the first time. Um, and we get that discussion between Magor and Mithros who are like, dude, look at that. Um, and, uh, and everybody who's left in Middle-earth, all of the good guys left in Middle-earth, who of course are not terribly numerous at that point, um, are seeing, so we get this one brief glimpse of what it looks like from Middle-earth. Here, it's like we stay on that side. Um, you know, we don't, you know, the messenger departs and sails off into, uh, uh, you know, into, into unexplored seas on a desperate attempt to get through. And we don't know any more about it. Um, remember, there was uncertainty as to whether or not Arendel got through. He never returned to Middle-earth. Um, and it's not until, you know, his intervention in the battle that anybody sees anything of him or knows anything about what happened. Now, of course, like, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the army of Valinor shows up uh, and starts kicking Morgoth's butt. But still, I mean, they had no idea, actually, what happened with Arendel. So um, I, the, 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 the point that I'm making here is the difference in the perspective of this story, whereas that one followed the Mariner and gave us the, the not-quite-omniscient standpoint, but basically, clearly the standpoint from those who were there, essentially the Valinorian standpoint, because we even hear, you know, the debate of the Council of the Valar talking about what to do with Arendel after he after he walks out of the room. Um, in other words, like most of the rest of the Silmarillion, the story of Arendel is told from an Elvish perspective, an Elvish perspective that is handed down um, from uh, people who uh, were conversant with the Valar um, and many of these stories, like the Ainulindale, uh, like the story of the the early history of the First Age before the arising of the Elves. That stuff all comes secondhand from the Valar themselves, from Elves who knew them. Here, we don't get that, and the perspective stays closer to the Numenorean perspective. I, you know, we just, Amandil sails off into the distance, and we don't know what happens. Did he land in Valinor and have an Arendil moment? Um, maybe. We don't know. Uh, that is, that's a question that's really left open, not just by the sort of mystery of, of his disappearance and, uh, you know, Laura, as you point out, what could certainly at the very least be taken as indirect evidence that he, uh, that he did get through based upon the fact that Elendil and his people were saved. But that, that reminder that we get there at the bottom of 279, but whether or no it were that Amando came indeed to Valinor and Manway hearkened to his prayer, by grace of the Valar, Elendil and his sons and their people were spared from the ruin of that day. Um, so again, that, that, the question is floated. Whether it were, whether it happened or not, uh, we don't really know, but, um, so that I think is sort of an interesting reminder. But again, there have been a couple moments in this story that is in the Akalabaith when I've, asked the question, or we've been kind of thinking about, what perspective is this from? Is this an elven story, or is this actually a human story, told from the human perspective? Is this to is are, are, are we supposed to understand that this story is basically uh, 
given to us by the survivors of Numenor, handed down amongst you know the generations of Numenorians in Middle-earth, and that that's where this story comes from? Or is this another elven story? And I think that this... Um, um, this moment, the, the, the uncertainty of what happened with Amandil is an interesting possibility anyway, um, to suggest that maybe this really is an actual, uh, a human Numenorean perspective story rather than an elvish story and is therefore, uh, somewhat different, uh, from the rest of the Silmarillion. Um, but anyway, that is a long digression about, uh, the, not even uh, the full question. Corey, Jordan, go ahead. If that's the case, then how do we know the ending of this story, where like they get to uh, Valinor and they land their ships and they're crushed underneath sand? Uh, if it's a story of men, I mean, Elendil and uh, Isildur would have no idea of what took place other than you know, like the great wave that cast them aside. So at the very least, it would have to be both elves and men telling the story together, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, no, you'd think. I mean, I agree. There are certainly moments which do sound more elvish, um, and that's that's a good point. I mean, though, again, even there, we're not really given... My, again, compare and contrast with the Eärendil story. We don't get anything like dialogue, for instance. Think of the details that we get in the Eärendil story. I mean, at the time, we were talking about how compressed that was the Eärendil story, uh, and how how little detail we got other than sort of a few things which kind of float in, like the uh, the moment that 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 uh, that Mike and I both liked about uh, Elwing's uh, you know hair being on his face as as uh, you know he woke up to discover that his wife had returned to her form. Um, however, um, think again of in the arrival in Valinor. We really do get a bunch of detail. We get that business about him leaving the ship and Elwing and him saying, I'm going to go by myself and Elwing jumping off and doing the Luthien bit. No, I'm coming with you. We get, uh, we get the, we get dialogue. We get, his, you know, his exactly the path that he travels and looking around in that strange, the strange sort of moment of anticlimax when he looks around and the place looks deserted. And then we get Aonwe's speech to him and him coming back. And then we get the debate among the Valar. All we get with our Farazan are some general, the general trend of the story there. That is, we get, um, the fact that the ships sailed and they surrounded Tal Arisea and they landed and they didn't meet anybody because the elves had withdrawn and then whammo. Um, that's all that we get. And that's, it's, it's again, it's, it's, it's a very different kind of story, which almost could be the story of somebody who doesn't actually know what happened um, and is just giving the, uh, giving sort of the basic gist of what, what is their fate. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know, but, but I do think that it is, uh, I do think that it is an interesting point. Um, Chris, you wanted to, to add to that? Yeah, just, uh, an observation. Um, we do, as far as what perspective that the story might be told from or different parts of the story, we do get a little bit of information of, uh, our Farazan and the Kings and his, and his army, um, so it might imply that some information got back probably by way of the elves to Middle-earth to convey that part of the story. Um, however, no news of Amandil, if that, you know, if that train of thought holds any water at all. Since there's no news of Amandil, it almost would, might suggest that he never got there. 
and so there was no news to give of him because he was never there. Just just a thought, again, um, no, nothing definitive, but this, that occurred to me. Right, right. The, or that the people of Middle-earth were on a need-to-know basis and not told about Amondil, um, that something about the fate of the Numenorean king uh, and his army uh, was sort of spread about, uh, but that nobody was told about Amando and whether he got through or not. Um, well, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, again, I'm not trying to, uh, uh, I don't, I'm actually not really sure myself whether I think that Amando got through or not. I can see some reasons pro and con. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Chris, go ahead. Did you want to say something more? Nope. That's why we discuss it. <laughs> right. We don't really know. So right. Toss it around. Right. Um, Jack? Um, as oh, Jordan, far go as Amandel goes, uh, it, would he have even really needed to land on Valinor to have gotten his message across? I mean, shouldn't Olmo have been aware? I mean, clearly they're aware of Elendil and Isildur on the other side of the island. Shouldn't they have been aware then of Amandel and what his mission was? Isn't it plausible that even if he didn't make it to Valinor, his message still was received loud and clear? He certainly suggests that. I mean, that's kind of... It's it, it's the comment that I think is most interesting um, about Imondil's journey is when Elendo asks him, would you then betray the king? For you know well the charge that they make against us, that we are traitors and spies, and that until this day it has been false. If I thought that Manway needed such a messenger, said Imondil, I would betray the king. For there is but one loyalty from which no man can be absolved in heart for any cause. If I thought that Manway needed such a messenger, I would betray the king. So there is a sense in which he is saying, really, there's no point to this journey. That is, I don't actually need to accomplish anything. I, I, I have no information to give to the Valar that they don't already have. You know, it's not like Arpharazon is going to catch them by surprise or something like that. Or even the message that he wants to give about, oh, hi, um, you know, the faithful are being persecuted and like bad people are, are doing bad things to the good guys. Like, th- that's not a piece of information that the Valar appear to need either. Certainly Amandil doesn't think that they need to receive that information, and yet he's going to go anyway. Clearly he believes the voyage worth making, um, even though it's not actually necessary. It is, he's going to make this messenger, this voyage as a messenger, even though he doesn't think the message is actually necessary. Um, and that, I think, is 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 a really a very suggestive and revealing point about Imondel's whole point of view here and what it means for him to be a messenger uh, to the Valar. Um, remember, another really interesting thing about this moment and about Imondil's voyage, it is Imondil who breaks the ban of the Valar. He is the first Numenorean to, to break the ban and sail into the West. It's not Arpharazon who does it. Arpharazon's all fixing to do it and setting out to do it. Um, but Amondil, the good guy, actually beats him to it and is the first one to break the ban. And that, again, I think is, I think is kind of interesting too. Jack? Yeah, just on the larger subject of uh, sources, um, I think it's really fascinating to, to try and figure out where it comes from. And I remember when I first started reading uh, Silmarillion, um, realizing that most of this is from uh, the Alpen perspective. That was a real, that was a key to the book for me. So that really opened my eyes. But also, aren't there places in the Silmarillion where the information, there's just no explanation for where it comes from? Um, 
think, for example, I remember when Mel, early on when Melkor and Angolan were off in the wastelands talking to each other. You know, we're, we're getting word for word conversation from them. And I just couldn't think of me for the, for the life of me where the information was coming from. And there must be other places like that. Right. Well, and that's exactly what I think that we need to be careful not to be over literal in talk, in thinking about where the information comes from. Jack, that, that's a, that's a, that's a brilliant, um, a brilliant parallel or a brilliant instance of exactly this kind of thing. When we say where it comes from and who's reporting it, it's not to say it's it's not to say that like somebody was there with like a digital recorder, you know, uh, or you know, like somebody was 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 in the bushes taking dictation when 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 Morgoth and Angolian were speaking. And that's pretty typical for the genre of what all of this is, which is legend that, you know, all of this is designed to be and to appear to be and to sound like ancient legendary material. And in ancient legendary material, there tends to be very little, uh, well, there's, 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 there's really no attempt at what, you know, something that we might think of as like journalistic accuracy, like somebody there actually taking down the whole, the whole, uh, conversation and reporting it accurately. When two characters speak to each other in, you know, in legends and epics and things like that, it's not like, and this is what they said word for word, but rather we know that Morgoth and Ungoliant, uh, spoke, you know, we know that they, collaborated and that they came into Valinor together. So here I, the bard, I, the teller of the tale, am going to give you a conversation between Morgoth and Ungoliant to talk about, to give the sense of their, of their conversation, of, of the, of the pact that they made to join together in order to destroy the trees. And if you go back and look at the conversation, we don't get there's very it, it doesn't sound like a normal conversation this actually i think is one of the reasons another one of the reasons stylistically people have a hard time with the silmarillion because they want to be able to get into it like a novel um you know to see sort of realistic what they would call realistic dialogue like two people talking to one another and people you know i've heard people say about conversations in the silmarillion who talks like that nobody talks like that well that's not the point yes there are people who talk like that you know who talk like that bards and epic poets that's who talks like that um and that's what it is you know so in that conversation it's not like you know morgoth and ungoing and hanging out that is a poetic treatment of the meeting of these two, you know, the, 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 the birth of the collaboration of these two wicked people. So similarly, when we get, um, and, you know, and the same thing could be said, the same explanation, I think, could be given, um, to some extent anyway, of the debate among the Valar over the fate of Arendel, for instance. Um, we know that this must have happened. We know that they must have talked about this. We can tell because we know that this is what they decided. Um, and, you know, here is kind of what it might have looked like, or here is, here is the, the sort of the, the gist of that. Um, but, uh, um, anyway, so I think that that's, it's an important thing to keep in mind when we're looking at, um, you know, who is saying what and who is relating what, because you, they don't, they don't actually have to have been eyewitnesses. And again, that's where I come back to the, what we get of our Farazans, attack on Valinor, if this were actually, you know, if we were being given an eyewitness account, if we were being given an actual description of what happened, um, I think it might well be very different. Um, what we're given is 
a poetical account, you know, with some with some interesting uh, poetic and mythic touches. I think, for instance, of the detail that we're given about the sadness of the elves of Tall Erisea when the sails of the Numenorians blot out the, the light of the setting sun from Valinor. Um, but these are not exactly realistic details. Um, in the sense in which we would expect them in a realistic novel or 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 um, the kind of up-close account that we have gotten on some occasions at various points in the Silmarillion. Um, yeah, uh, Joe, go ahead. Well, and if if it was a uh, if it was a first-hand account of the elves in Valinor, it would go more of the and then we ran like cowards because it turns out <laughs> men are our equals in some things. <laughs> At least the Numenorians, who have been gaining physical stature uh, and power anyway for a long time. Um, uh, yes, I. I, I prefer to think of that as a as a tactical retreat on the part of the elves. Um, uh, basically, they're doing what the Valar is doing, which is um, clearly everybody on the Valinor side doesn't want to fight this fight, and um, you know doesn't actually want to have a war with the Numenorians. Um, I do think that I mean, as we talked about before, as Tolkien suggests in one of his letters, uh, you know, the Numenorians they could have done some serious damage had a war been actually had, had battle been joined um but i don't think it's you know it is merely fear of losing um again as we see reflected in the response of of manway and the other valar um but we're getting ahead of ourselves here um uh joe go ahead all right um <clears throat> i don't really have a uh, definite stance on whether amandio made it and lived or not just uh, but you see this other times throughout the book, like uh, when um, Uor uh, is talking to Turgon. Uh, you know, he says, "With the eyes of death, I say this." And Amandil says something similar. He says, uh, "He says that he said farewell to all his household as one that is about to die." Um, he said, "You know, may prove that you see me never again." All this and all that uh, gives us a goodbye speech, and then um, and it says further down the next paragraph, uh, "Men could not a second time be saved by such an embassy, and for the treason of Numenor there was no easy absolving." Now, this makes me lean more towards the case that he didn't make it, but I guess you never know. It just seems like more of a definite, yeah, he definitely wasn't going to survive it. It's whenever you see someone speak like that in the mm-hmm. really and it never ends well for them. Right. Um, yeah, no, I mean, there is something of the, of the, you know, this I say with, you know, uh, you know, the, the, you know, him seeing with the eyes of death as, as, as Huor does in the Fens of Serek. Yeah. Um, no, I think he's definitely going to die one way or the other. And, um, and I think certainly, I think that the, to me the main difference there. You think about the the the, the differences between Amandil's situation and Arendil's situation as messengers. Arendil shows up as the representative of the Edain and the Eldar in Middle Earth, because of course he's both. He's half and half by blood, and he is the lord of, you know, all of the survivors together. Um. But he really is speaking on behalf of everybody. That is all the good guys. Um, yes, we're all being oppressed by the enemy, by Morgoth and his servants, but all the elves and men who are left in Beleriand, I'm speaking on their behalf. Amondo, of course, isn't. And the biggest, um, the biggest, the biggest difference is that Amondo is basically, if he is appealing on behalf of Numenor, well, he's not actually representing Numenor. Who does he represent? He represents the faithful. But as we know, the faithful were a minority in Numenor and by now are a really small minority in Numenor. Um, 
And the rest of the Numenorians, if if what he is seeking is clemency for Numenor, please don't smite Numenor. Well, like while he's doing this, everybody, you know, our Farazon continues to arm, and you know, Numenor is still uh, headed towards uh, hell just as fast in its in the same handbasket. So, um, yeah, go ahead, Jordan. That's Joe. Oh, it's Joe. Go ahead. But uh, one thing I was going to say, uh, I don't. This, not much has much evidence behind it or not, but uh, one thing, I mean, it, you said that uh, Amandi was the first one to break the band of the Valar, and then uh, later on you see that uh, Alfarazon has that moment of hesitation, and it seems like Amandi may have been able to give him that moment of hesitation by being the first one to break it, maybe since it was already broken, I mean, maybe he kind of took the blunt of the, the Valar, like, alright, we're well, going to go ahead and die, and when Alfarazon comes over, he'll have the chance to do what he wants. That's really not very, thought out very well, it just it popped into my head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that, um, I, I, I do love that moment too, when our Farazon hesitates. Um, and it is, I, there's something almost not quite comical, but almost comical. And it's like, I'm about to break the ban of the Valar. And it's like, dude, actually the ban of the Valar was just broken. Like, you know, you know, a few hours ago. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean that even that, that even he hesitates in that moment. Um, but uh but yeah no i think that that's i think that i i think that that's good but anyway as i say i i i do think there's a significant difference um what amando is is asking it's not even it's not even exactly obvious what he is asking arendel his his message is a little clearer um please forgive the noldor and please come save us cuz we're getting stomped on over here by morgoth um what Amando is asking is uh is much i think much less clear um bes- I, you know he says uh you know i'm going to uh, therefore i am minded to try that counsel which our forefather aerendel took of old to sail into the west be their banner no and to speak to the valar even to manway himself if may be and beseech his aid ere all is lost beseech his aid is pretty vague that's not a plan really um really he seems to be throwing himself on the mercy of the valar and then you know laura we come back to the point that you made earlier well uh it seems that the aid was given and especially manway's aid because it's a wind which saves elendo and the rest of their company um this wild wind which comes out of the west and blows them before the wave um so whether or not he got there, they do appear to receive the aid of Manway. Um, uh, John, do you have your do you have your mic now? I know you had wanted to talk about Amandil too. So before we moved on from that, I wanted to uh, give you the chance to do that. Okay, sorry. If uh, it's you can uh, feel free to jump in, John. If you uh, if you can turn on your mic here in a minute, I'll just mention one of the points that you mentioned in the class notes. Um, I agree with you. I think there is this sense that Sauron in his uh in his plan here has indeed underestimated or forgotten Eru. Remember he the 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 line that he's feeding to Arpharazon is that Eru is made up, right? That uh, there's no such thing as Eru. Eru is a lie that's told by the elves uh and the Valar. Um and it's just a conspiracy uh to keep everybody else down and to give them power. Um, and he tells, he whispers at first to Arpharazon the name of Melkor, who is the true master of all. Um, and it is almost like he has, uh, he has bought his own line. 
surely Sauron himself knows perfectly well that he is telling a lie to Arpharazon. Um, I don't think that Sauron himself is actually an atheist. However, um, there is the, I mean, that the moment when Sauron falls, uh, in Numenor is, uh, it, it, it is, uh, this sort of, the delightful irony and justice of him, of him, you know, sitting there and cackling in satisfaction and triumph, uh, you know, that he has won and, uh, and then, you know, the bottom drops out and down he goes into the abyss. Um, and it is like he has actually started to buy his own, um, he is starting to, started to buy his own lies. Um, uh, Joe, I think a while back, before we sort of shifted away from it, you had said you you had something you wanted to say about Isildur? Yeah, I uh, just wanted to talk about when um, he went and saved the tree, pretty much. You know, he he fights his way to it, saves it, and then um, it says he's on the brink of death, and he gets it back, and it says he's sick until uh, the first leaf opens after they plant it. And, uh, and then, you know, he says he arises in trouble no more, no more by his wounds. And I wonder, I mean... If that healing would have come from a gift of the Valor or possibly um, Iluvatar, I just wasn't sure because, I mean, Iluvatar works more directly with men, but I'm pretty sure that the tree was a gift from the Valor, so I just didn't know how that would kind of relate. And uh, it's just interesting how you see uh, the Valor also work with uh, the Faithful Sil or Iluvatar, whoever it was, how, okay, you're willing to do this, this is great, so yeah, we'll heal you, no big deal. Mm-hmm. No, I think that that's a, uh, that's a great question. And I th- you know, basically, the way that I... The way that I deal with that passage is um, I, this seems to me much more kind of metaphorical than that. Um, I mean, the clear the clear thing that we get is the connection that the thing that that moment in the story emphasizes is Isildur's connection connection with the tree. Um, and remember, this is. Already the significance that the tree has been given. Um, Sauron wants Arpharazon to cut it down. He wants him to cut it down for a reason. Um, but even Arpharazon is reluctant to cut down the white tree. Um, at first the king would not assent to this. This is the bottom of 272. Since he believed that the fortunes of his house were bound up with the tree, as was forespoken by Tar, pa- by tar Palantir. So Tar Palantir, the foresighted, um, has said the fate of the house of, of Elros is tied up with the fate of the white tree. And here we see in Isildur, whom we know he is the heir. We've got Amandil and his heir Elendil and Elendil's heir Isildur. And Isildur is... Um, you know, we so we see his own survival. Um, Isildur himself is like the fruit of the tree, the the fruit that survives, which is going to bear the new tree, and uh, and therefore the promise of the new future, uh, and the new future line. That is like Isildur himself. He is quite young. He's he's a kid. Isildur is, we're told, and I mean not like six or something, but he's 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 young. He's maybe I don't know. The Numenorians live longer, so the ages would mean something different stuff to them. But anyway, it's, it's, uh, um, it's, you know, he's, we're told that he is young, um, and he is, and he takes this fruit, and then we see this explicit connection between his own health, uh, and Isildur's survival. When its first leaf opened, then Isildur, who had lain long and come near to death, arose and was troubled no more by his wounds, as you read, Joe. And that's, um, he is, he is healed by the tree just as he has in preserving the tree also sort of metaphorically 
uh, preserved the sanctity of the line of the of 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 the descendants of Elros, which he is and which he is going to be. Um, so I'm not sure basically even how literally I take that. That is, you know, the mechanism there doesn't seem to me quite as important as the kind of overall uh, sort of mythic shape of that of that moment. But uh, Chris, go ahead. I was reminding when um, at the part of the bottom of 273, when the tree, when Sauron finally gets his way and the tree is burned, and the effect that that has, first of all, there's a smoke that covers the land, and then it slowly passes into the west. And so I was reminded of, um, well, like Saruman, he tries to go into the west and gets blown away. This is, it's almost like the tree is a being in and of itself, the way it, the way it's, uh, well, essence or spirit, whatever you want to call it. it they just say it's smoke, but it's, it's, I, I found it very evocative of, uh, of the other, of things that, you know, get, go into the West. That's a wonderful point. I'd never really thought about that before, but it's true. It's like the unquiet spirit of the tree of Nimloth, um, you know, looming above Numenor, um, you know, itself like a portent. And then as you say, uh, it's hard to ignore when you pay attention to it. Um, that it is that slowly it passed into the West. Um, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think that that's a really neat way to think about, to think about that passage. It's like Nimloth, um, as you say, almost like the spirit of Nimloth returning back where it came into the West. Um, and it is also, it's a moment when another threshold has clearly been crossed. Another line has been crossed in the rebellion of the Numenorians. There was the uh, the change of the language, you know, the change of the names of the king. That was a big line. Um, this this is a big line. The burning of the tree was a really big line. Again, Sauron wanted that to happen it's for almost a reason. Like the, Go ahead. It's almost the, the the final straw. I mean, and of course we've got the attack on Valinor coming, but as far as you know, the last of the symbolism that held them to the west, that was the tree. Now it's burnt. You know, there's there's absolutely no going back after that point, it seems. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that this is, uh, um, it is after that that the sort of apocalyptic stuff in Numenor really starts to happen. Um, John? Well, going back to, you know, not to digress greatly on the, um, the Sauron points, especially, you know, in regards to his downfall, and especially tying into um, the White Tree of Nimloth, it seems like going back to the earlier reports of, uh, you know, the, the wise lord Palantir, Tar Palantir, you know, how the line of the kings basically will be tied to basically the fortune of basically Nimloth and the descendants of Nimloth affair. And basically this same seed, the same root, basically continues on in regards to, you know, in the Third Age. I remember quite clearly there was that conversation in The Return of the King between Gandalf and um, Aragorn in regards to how basically the line of the tree needs to be preserved, how it is older, and how it's basically greater than, you know, even his line of the, you know, the lords of Isildur and the descendants of Isildur. And the fact that Isildur is here mentioned in that kind of detail, not basically that one little segment, because later on, especially in something the films have done, you know, to Isildur's character is after his, you know, fall into the Lord of the Ring, we don't basically get a, you know, untempted Isildur in that adaptation. And here we basically get an early version, uh, early basically sketch of his character 
where we have almost like a three-part family dynamic here. We have Amandil, who um, essentially sets the standard for wisdom. Then we have Elendil, who's carrying on the same torch, and after him, Isildur. And with basically this kind of dynamic working together, it, we get the sense that this minority, the faithful, has a voice. That's what I feel, especially artistically. The fact that it actually does have a voice in the text is different from, for example, a wide description of Arferazon at the ending where he, you know, he wavers upon his invasion of the Undying Lands. And that's why I think it holds precedent in the text. Yeah, John, I think that that's, uh, you're certainly right that we should be remembering. And I think that um, we are, it's certainly one of the important functions of this one little Isildur story that we get um, here is this, the way in which that passage serves as a bridge to the Third Age stuff. Not only the Third Age stuff that we're going to get in the next section, you know, the section we're going to get to next week, um, but also the the portion of of Third Age of the Third Age that we already know about. Um, and uh, you know, I, Isildur has been part of the story from the beginning that is part of the Lord of the Rings story, which, you know, every in, the Silmarillion is put together with the assumption that everyone who reads it is going to have read the Lord of the Rings. It was, it was of course, published posthumously. And even when Tolkien was working on it um, in his later days, it was still after, uh, after the publication of the Lord of the Rings and in response to the popularity of the Lord of the Rings that publishers actually became interested in publishing it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's sort of, in that sense, presume that we know that story, and therefore that this reference to Isildur is going to really resonate with us, and and that we're going to be able to see the seeds not only of the kingship, but John, as you say, to 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 see, knowing what we know of Isildur, which is not only his taking of the his defeat of Sauron ultimately, um, but also his taking of the ring and of his his at least struggling with the temptation of the ring and his being betrayed by the ring. Um, you know, it does give this moment a little bit of a taste of tragedy because we know how his story is going to end. And seeing it start this way, I think, puts it in a context, which I think is really interesting. Um, but uh, good, good. Well, let's go on to the uh, the reaction of um, the reaction of the Valar... Oh wait, Mike, you had I a... actually have uh, oh, Jordan, go ahead. one thing quickly on Sauron before we hop ahead. Sure. Um, I don't think we talked about it last week. Well, first of all, um, when he says, you know, like when we talk about how he's an atheist, but yeah, obviously not, um, I don't think he could have possibly expected Iluvatar's actual interaction with the world because we've never seen that before. Um, but besides that, uh, one of the things I found really interesting, and I don't think we talked about it last week, was that uh, Sauron still, when he's, like, telling Numenor about, you know, like, the great dark master, he's telling them it's Morgoth, which seems sort of bizarre that he's still that loyal to Morgoth, um, even though like, you would think at that point he'd be like, hey, you know who's the master of the dark? I am. <laughs> right. uh, and instead is, you know, cl- clearly saying like, oh, no, no, there's someone out there much more powerful than me, and he's coming back. Uh, and I don't know if he really believes that or if he's just so loyal that he won't say anything bad against Morgoth. It's a great question. I mean, I was, I was, you know, uh, Jordan, it's funny you, sh- you should say that. When I was rereading uh, this earlier today, that was the thing that really jumped out at me reading it through this time. Um, 
and I was asking myself exactly that question. Isn't it interesting that Sauron at least still appears to be faithful? It's hard for me to imagine that he really is just like so devoted that he is, uh, you know, that he's still acting that way out of pure selfish, de- selfless devotion. But he is not elevating himself. Now, again, I think you, there are lots of things that could potentially be said about that. You know, you could say, well, it's, it's strategy. I mean, right. I mean, he's just, if, uh, if he just sets up to say like, actually I am God, you should be worshiping me right now. Um, that that's, you know, sort of a lot more obvious, uh, and going to be a lot more suspicious. Whereas if he seems to be giving secret knowledge and even of course, secret knowledge that does have some power behind it, we know that we're told at the end of, uh, of, of the Quintus Silmarillion that not only does Morgoth still exist, but that his power is still felt in the world. Um, and doubtless Sauron will remember and, we know he has been um, making capital out of the fact that men have always feared the dark and, you know, that the Numenorians, you know, in one sense, as we described the story of the Numenorian culture at the beginning is this rising up out of darkness and into light. Um, however, it's still there and sort of the memory of it in, in, in a sense is still there. So maybe he's just like, you know, he thinks this is the best way to get it done. We do see that moment when he's defying the lightning and men call him a God. Um, so it's not at all obvious to me that getting himself deified isn't perhaps in the long term plan, even though that's not his initial move there. Um, but all of those things said, I still think that that's, a fascinating thing, given the given the the context back in the Valaquenta when we're told that the only thing that made him less evil than Morgoth was that for a while he served somebody else and not and not just himself. Um, and so, at the very least, we're getting a kind of echo of that, um, which which I I do think is 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 kind of suggestive, even if it's still out of fear uh, that he, Sauron, is not yet going to go around and just kind of ignoring or writing off Morgoth completely, because, you know, someday he might come back, and what if he wins, and then Sauron wants uh, wants still to have a job after that. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that that's... But I do agree that that's a really interesting passage. Um Moving on to the to the the actual downfall of Numenor and the response of of Iluvatar, uh, Mike, you had wanted you had a you had a style time moment that you wanted to do. Um, there was a paragraph you wanted to read. It, uh, you'll indulge me. It's the paragraph where Tolkien lists all of the things in a sort of summary sentence that are lost mm-hmm. when Numenor slides down into the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, then suddenly fire burst from the Meneltarma, and there came a mighty wind and a tumult of the earth, and the sky reeled, and the hills slid, and Numenor went down into the sea with all its children, and its wives, and its maidens, and its ladies proud, and all its gardens, and its halls, and its towers, its tombs, and its riches, and its jewels, and its webs, and its things painted and carven, and its laughter, and its mirth, and its music, its wisdom, and its lore. They vanished forever. That is a fantastic sentence. Now, you were particularly interested in the colon there at the end? 
Yeah, I'm wondering what, what what's going on with the, the the colon that separates the list of you know sort of what made up Numenor versus what happened to it after the colon. And I'm also interested in the the sequence of how things are listed there, starting with children and ending, or maybe culminating in a way I don't know with uh, legend and lore. I'm sorry, wisdom and lore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, this is a really fascinating sentence to look at from a couple different uh, things. We start with the with the fire bursting from the metal tarma. And the mighty wind and tumult of earth and the sky reeled and the and the hills slid. So we've got this, um, you know, the whole... We, of course, know the significance of the Menaltarma. That was the holy place to Eru, the only place of worship that is explicitly described anywhere in Tolkien's work. And, and it's exploding in fire, which is not a good sign. Um, and then we have what starts to, like, it's just going to be like, you know, we're, we're just going to have this apocalyptic description. Oh, wind, earthquake, the sky reeled, the hills slid, okay, everything was destroyed. And Numenor went down into the sea. Um, and if we got a period there, it would still be a pretty cool sentence, but um, not all that much uh, sort of interesting. But then, Mike, now starts the part of it that you are really focusing on, right? With all the the with all, you know, it, what exactly went down with Numenor? Um, it's children, it's wives, it's maidens and ladies proud. So we've got the people first, and these are of course the people left uh, because all of the men and warriors have gone over to Valinor. Um, and it is an interesting progression. Children, wives, maidens, and ladies proud. Gardens and its hills and its towers, its tombs and its riches, its jewels and its webs and its things painted and carven, its laughter and its mirth and its music, its wisdom and its lore. They vanished forever. And they're clearly in sets, right? You've got its people, <clears throat> its uh, buildings, essentially, its architecture gardens count there because those would have been designed and laid out as well it's tombs and it's riches the connection between tombs and riches there is really fascinating of course we talked about the tombs and the the mummies and everything the the sort of the fixation on tombs that was growing up in Numenor and uh the uh the connection between between those two things that like the you know them storing up riches for themselves uh is really just like even in their lives, when they're building themselves amazing palaces and gathering wealth and wealth and wealth, it's still kind of like the same thing as them building themselves enormous tombs. Um, and then specifically, it's jewels and it's webs and it's things painted in carbon. Now, hang on. Why did we just go from riches to jewels? They seem they're in two different sets. It's tombs and it's riches. It's jewels and it's webs and it's things. But um, why is why is jewels not included in the in the previous one? Any thoughts on that? No, I know there aren't that many of you tonight. What's the theme of that third set? It's jewels and it's webs and it's things painted in carbon. Yeah, Chris, I agree. S say that aloud for, for for our listeners. Art is what I was thinking of. Um, I'm not. I think of the Noldor, you know, making the jewels. I mean, that, I don't know the. the uh, the Numenorians didn't, but it, it kind of fits in with the rest of the sentence then if you think of um, things that are artistic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's why I think 
the riches at first, this is clearly a bad thing associated with their tombs. Um, it talks of, that seems to point to basically the, the sort of pointless vanity, even self-destructive vanity of the Numenorians vanishes forever. But also its jewels and its webs and its things painted in carbon, the, the works of their hands. They made some pretty awesome stuff. And that stuff was not was not a bad thing. I don't think that we're you know we're supposed to see their jewels, and we we already get like its children, its wives, and its maidens and ladies proud. The pride of the ladies is presumably not a good thing. Um, the loss of its children and wives and maidens, at least, is 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 tragic. The loss of the jewels and the webs and things painted in carven is tragic, as is its laughter and its mirth and its music. Laughter and mirth are two things that haven't been associated with Numenor in a long time. Um, and, and I think in the context of music there, again, we're supposed to be things of, things of beauty. Oh, webs, I believe, tapestries. Um, web almost always means, uh, means, means tapestry. Um, that's what, uh, that's why even the, the, the common last name Weber, um, if you know somebody whose last name is Weber, um, that means they were, that, that, that originally that was one of those, one of those occupational last names, um, like Smith and Cooper, uh, a Weber was a tapestry maker. Um, so anyway, that's what, that's what webs are. Um, storied webs, you may remember are also hung in the halls of Mandos. Uh, his wife, Vire is, um, busily making storied webs, um, meaning tapestries that with, uh, with narratives on them, pictorial narratives. It's laughter and it's mirth and it's music. It's wisdom and it's lore. And Mike, I agree with you. I think it's, it is clearly sort of in the place of honor that it's wisdom and lore are, are mentioned. Even just the even handedness of this list, I think is, really fascinating that we get not only this is not just pure nostalgia but it's also not condemnation not not simply condemnation either it would be easy to make a list that goes in either one of those ways that is we could easily make a you know we could easily imagine a list in which you have like and all the pride and vanity of Numenor the cruelty and the heartlessness the rebellion and uh, you know the discontent and all those things you know all things which point in that direction and it all fell into the abyss like it deserved like that would be one way to approach this the other way would be as I said pure nostalgia like all oh, the great things Numenor was so awesome Awesome, and now it's all gone forever. That would be another way, and again, that's another easy way to imagine how that list would go. But to go to do it the way that that he does to to recognize both of those things, their tombs and their riches and their ladies proud at the same time as we get their children and their mirth and laughter and music and wisdom, um, is to really show a more balanced picture than we've seen of Numenor in pages and pages when we've just seen it continually sliding into corruption for so long. We get this brief memory of not only was it not all bad, it was really quite good, though corrupted um, and uh, all focused on tombs and riches at the end. It was, uh, it, you know, the loss of Numenor is a genuine loss. Mike? An exact parallel, but I was reminded of uh, Melkor and Ungoliant before they you know, come down from the mountain to attack the trees. There is there was that moment that we lingered on where we get a sort of view of the whole landscape yes. before everything is ruined. So, uh, and and that landscape is is pure beauty and pure goodness. There's no sort of intermingling of the good and the bad. 
but sort of the same spirit here that we get one final opportunity to take it all in before it's destroyed. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And th there is a kind of that's a neat connection. I remember you making that point uh, back when we were talking about that. And uh, that's uh, I I think that that is we do get that kind of let us pause to review. This is you know that that this sentence itself, like this sentence, is the memorial of Numenor uh, to some extent. And I think that we can see that same thing. That sentence that you were recalling, if I'm remembering it rightly, was like a memorial of the bliss of Valinor before it was marred uh, by the darkening. Um, good. Well, what do you make of the actual consequences? Tell me, uh, tell me what you know, what you found interesting, or what kind of questions you had, or thoughts that you had about the response to the attack of Arpharazon. Um What Manway does, uh, what Elevatar uh, does. Go ahead. Well, I was thinking, um, why? And this is actually Dave's point, um, and I, I sort of wondered it myself as well. Why the Valar themselves don't engage? Uh, they sort of sit back and say, you know what? This isn't like the Battle of Wrath, or this isn't like anything else, although, of course, we know the Valar didn't go to the Battle of Wrath, but uh, they didn't send out their heralds, they didn't send out their armies, they sat back completely and said, Iluvatar is going to take care of this one for us. Um, and sort of why they just completely sit back, is it, in the theory Dave was wondering was that, is it just for fear that if they did engage them, they would lose um, massive amounts of life, um, or is it maybe something else that we're missing? Well, I mean, my own answer to that is both. Um, both that they want to avoid the unnecessary bloodshed because this, because they know this is not going to be. So, this is this is not the, a problem that's just going to be solved by slaughtering the Numenorians with difficulty, um, but rather this is a this is a bigger thing. But oh well, Chris, did you want to add something? Yes, I, I guess it occurs to me back in the music, it, it, it almost seems like the, the Valar realize that the that men are more under the uh, purview of Iluvatar than than their own. So they're I've always viewed it as they're they're stepping back and letting Iluvatar deal with these troublesome beings that he's brought, <laughs> that he's brought forth. Dude, these are your problem, okay? I, <laughs> like, when, well, I, and, you uh, thought this whole you know, little... mortal thing was a good idea? You deal with this. Well, I'm that, you know, not to be facetious, but um, that the third theme, deal with the children of Iluvatar, well, we've got the elves, and the, the, the Valar seem to at least to a degree understand them. They haven't don't seem to have a clue about men, and so... Um, I, I've always saw that as they saw Iluvatar having more authority and, over men than, and then they didn't. I'm not stating that very well, but no, I, I I agree. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would put it in quite that way. That is the because I mean, Manway is clear. I mean, he is he is he is the vice region of Iluvatar on the Earth. So it's not like men are outside of his jurisdiction exactly. Um, sure. But but I do agree with you. I mean, I think about it still in a similar kind of way. That is, that Manway recognizes that this is this is beyond. This is not just about him. That you know that this is that if he were to step in and do some smiting on the Numenorians, he would essentially 
be kind of breaking in on something which isn't really about him, I think. But, Laura, go ahead. Well, I think that uh, Eru had to get involved because um, this involves uh, changing the shape of... Um, I'm sorry, my, my brain is shut off tonight. I can't think of the names of anything. Of Arda. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he's he's getting rid of Numenor, but he's also changing the world so that it's round instead of flat. And that's something that the Valar couldn't do. You know, they had to they had to um they had to call on Eru to to have him do that for them because they wanted to remove this temptation from mankind to to come to Valinor and uh, that's not something they could do on their own. So yeah. I think that's why they had to involve uh, Iluvatar. Well, I see and though Yes, I agree. Though I think the I would say the cause and effect goes goes the other way there. That is that's what Iluvatar does. Um when they leave it up to him, which I think does sort of suggest that it was the correct response to the situation. And certainly the Valar, I don't think, could have done that. Um, but it, I, but I don't think we could quite say that, like, the Valar saw that this needed happening. And so, I mean, basically, we would want to avoid, I think, uh, thinking that the Valar are essentially using Iluvatar as a subcontractor here. I'm not saying that you're suggesting that, but that seems to me in some sense kind of the logical the logical extension of it. Like, you know, do you need a really big job done? Uh get Iluvatar to do it. Um but rather that they genuinely leave it. I mean, the 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 words that are used about Manway there are quite I mean, I remember the first time I the first time I read this and I found it kind of shocking. The first half of the sentence I didn't find shocking, the second half I did. Then Manway call then Manway upon the mountain called upon Iluvatar. That didn't shock me. And for that time the Valar laid down their government of Arda. That's the part that surprised me. I was like, wait, that's I mean I was already for I was already for a smiting. Um especially with the whole I mean it's there's almost the equivalent of smack talk going on between the Valar and the Numenorians, right? The Numenorians are all, I mean, literally talking smack, like yelling outwards to the west, um, you know, and, and making various discourteous and, and, and rebellious gestures in the direction of Valinor. And, but the whole thing with like, we are sending huge clouds in the shape of eagles with lightning coming down underneath it. And they're actually picking off people again. Then this is a manway thing. The, the lightning, right? Um, he's actually he's actually picking off people with lightning in the streets and in the fields and everything. You know, it's and and it's it, it's hard not to read that as Manway, you know, calling out, you know, not calling out the Numenorians, but telling the Numenorians like, hey. You want a piece of me? Look here. You want a piece of me? This is what it's going to be like. And so when they come over, you know, when the when the response of the Numenorians to that is basically, yeah, bring it, tough guy. We're coming to you, um, and we're going to take you down. I was ready for the Valar to to you know to to give them a give them the whooping that they richly deserve, and that's not what I find. Instead, what I find is. You know, Manway's response is to set aside his authority, to lay down their government of Arda. Um, they just leave it entirely up to Iluvatar. They say, hey, you, uh, you, you take over. You, you decide what is best to do. Um, 
in a sense, they, I mean, they're just they're submitting themselves to judgment. They're they're just appealing this case to the higher court, and clearly submitting to Iluvatar as well, laying down their government now. Apparently, Eru gives them their government back again. Um, he doesn't. He, you know, it's he doesn't. Uh, it, it, if this is a letter of resignation, Eru doesn't accept it. It seems, um, but uh, but basically, they are they are appealing to an arbiter, and there's at least the implication. Hey, maybe that you know, not that it's actually likely that the decision is going to go against them. It's pretty clear who are the good guys and who are the bad guys here. But again, they're kind of putting themselves on that footing where they too are just coming before the judgment seat. Um, again, not quite on equal ground with with the Numenorians, but on a heck of a lot more equal ground than I would have expected at first. Mike? Right after that sentence, uh, Iluvatar showed forth his power. That starts with, but. Yes. When the, when the Valar appeal, are they then appealing with an anticipation that there will be some non-violent judgment from Iluvatar, and does the but indicate that they were not expecting the more violent reaction? I, I, I think it's, that's, uh, that's exactly the kind of observation I've come to expect from you, Mike. I agree that but is really interesting. But Iluvatar showed forth his power. I, the thing I get from that but is certainly that this is not what they expected to happen. I don't know if it's not what they wanted to happen, but it's certainly not what they expected to happen. But Iluvatar showed forth his power. Um, this is why I don't think that they were angling for what happened. Um, I think that they are as surprised as anybody else at the quite remarkable measures that Iluvatar takes here to separate Middle-earth from uh, from the Valor. And the point that I've made before, the point that I have, you know, that I, that I make in my Tolkien class when we get here, um, is you know, what Iluvatar does is take the ban of the Valar and make it permanent. Make it, make it unab, you know, now it's not just, I'm going to rely upon your will, uh, to resist the temptation to sail into the West. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to expect you not to sail into the West. This is what the Valar do with the Numenorians. Um, you could sail into the West, but don't. And Iluvatar is saying, okay, I'm taking that choice off the table for almost everybody. You know, there's, there will still be a straight road and maybe somebody, you know, there's, it's still, there's still, still the opportunity for the occasional sort of you catastrophe. But, um, but by and large, I'm slamming that door shut. Uh, and the ban of the Valar is going to be made absolute in a in ways that the Valar themselves don't make it. Um, so, I mean, basically, and this then would comes back to also what I think is, you know, the 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 other reason to me that Manway's response here makes sense. Um, that is, and the reason, you know, Jordan, getting back to the questions that you were asking about, why why are they not engaging in battle with the Numenorians? Ultimately, the Numenorians are pretty well deluded by this point, and they've been fooling themselves for some time. They think that they are coming to attack the Valar. They think that the Valar are their enemies. But that's because they've convinced themselves, and Sauron has helped in the convincing, that the Valar are keeping the land of of eternal life selfishly to themselves and trying to deprive men of it and have therefore by some uh by some conspiracy among the valar uh kept men down in enforced mortality 
But we know that that isn't true. Men are mortal because of the decision of Iluvatar, and as it is described in the Silmarillion, the gift of Iluvatar to men. As the Valar try to in, try to explain to the men during the debate back in the middle of the Akalabaith, there, there's look. This is Iluvatar's plan. You are actually fighting against Iluvatar. So basically, Manway is recognizing in that moment, you know what? Actually, though they're saying lots of rude things to me, and they're actually trying to attack us, and their fight is not with us. This is not really a quarrel between the Numenorians and, the, and Valinor. This is really a quarrel between the Numenorians and Iluvatar himself, because what they are upset about is death. They are upset about the lot that Iluvatar has given them in life, and they are trying to break that. That's the ban that they're really breaking. It's not really the, the geography thing, not so important. What is really important is that they are trying to break the limit that Iluvatar has set on their existence. Um, that's what they want to do. So, since this is between them and Iluvatar, let's, uh, you know, let Iluvatar and them step outside and take care of this themselves. And we see what happens. Whammo! But it's not just the whammo of, it's not just a violent response. It's not just an epic smiting of the Numenorians. I, I mean, it is. But, of course, it's much more than that, too. Um, and ends up being much more complete and much more, uh, well, I, 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 I was going to say global, um, which, of course, it is. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Jack? Yeah, since we're right in this paragraph, um, and it describes um, uh, our Farazan being, and his men being cast down into the, uh, into the, uh, the caves of, of the Forgotten, I'll bring this point up now uh, for Dave, he mentioned in the notes, um, was... Um, was he was Erfarazan getting what he wanted, but twisted uh, in immortality in this uh, in this paragraph? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I, I think that that's it's a it's a kind of a delightful thing. They do get what they're looking for. Um, that is, they in a sense are going to live forever. I mean, they're put into this suspended animation, um, which. I, it, it's 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 impossible to me not to connect it with the desire that the Numenorians have had all along. Hey, we want. Hey, look, we're gonna live forever. Isn't this awesome? Okay, well, actually, less awesome than it is not exactly how we pictured things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Elizabeth, go ahead. Oh, well, just kind of along that same point. Um, when I was reading that particular sentence about the um the Numenorians being uh, imprisoned in the caves of their forgotten it, and this is kind of a stretch I know but it made me think about um the, a parallel with uh, the return of the king and the oathbreakers and how they're also kind of stuck in this kind of imprisoned purgatory until they fight this battle to release them um with uh you know with Aragorn um in the in that final battle. And I thought it was a really interesting sort of parallel moment that they you know, the um Numenorians broke that ban whereas the um I guess the the men of the Haunted Mountain they they broke their oath uh with a seal door. I thought that was kinda interesting. I agree. I think that's really neat. I've never thought about those two together before, but once you mention it, it does make a lot of sense. As you say, they're not exactly the same. Um, you know, the oath-breaking is clearly very different from the rebellion of the Numenorians in some ways, 
but but I agree that sense of suspended animation. Of course, the chief difference I would say is the fulfillment, right? You know, there's this, there is still this, uh, you know, once they, the Oathbreakers, that is, once they fulfill their oath, they can have peace. Whereas the Numenorians, it's not at all clear that they're gonna ever really get peace, um, because they, in some sense, have actually exiled themselves from peace by the choice that they made to rebel in the first place, and more, you know, the choice that they made not to be content with their lot. If you make your choice not to be content with your lot, you're not gonna have peace at all. Um, but, but I agree. I, I think that that, that connection is a really fascinating one. Um, and I'd have to think about that more, but, uh, um, but no, that's very cool. Chris? It's a, a strange thought. It talks about them being imprisoned until the last battle. Mm-hmm. Now, the last battle comes, and all of a sudden there's this enormous Numenorean army that presumably is released. Um, I think somebody said, asked this in the document. Whose side do they fight on? Do they redeem themselves by fighting on the side of the Valar and the good guys? Or are they so ticked off from having been imprisoned for millennia or ages and ages, they uh, go over to the dark side. So it's just kind of an interesting thought about what, what mindset are they going to be in when they wake up. Yep, I agree. Um, if I had to guess, I would say they're going to be given a choice as to which side they're going to fight on. Um, and if they make point, the right yeah. choice, it would be an opportunity for them to redeem their choice, uh, to redeem their mistake. And it'd be very handy to have that big army sitting there waiting to fight, too, all armed and ready to go. Yeah, sure would. Sure would. But, uh, you know, if I had to guess which one they are going to choose, uh, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think they're going to make the right choice. I'm not hopeful, honestly. I'm not. I don't have. I don't have very sanguine very expectations of the Numenorians in the last battle there. But you know, that's just my guess. I might be wrong. Um, but we do know that there is a certain amount of redemption um, that is going to go on um, in the final battle, uh, most notably. And I think did I mention this when we did the Turin Turambar story, the redemption of Turin in the last battle? Did we talk about that? Does this make any sense to anybody? Does anyone have any idea what I'm talking about? This was only in some of. I know. To- I remember reading something. Yeah, yeah. This this was this was in in Turin to- Tolkien's is, is early going stuff. To be a leader at the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In fact, he's gonna be in in the in the 1930 sketch of the mythology. Um, this is this is the first sort of the first wave of Tolkien's Silmarillion revisions post Lost Tales uh, era. So he's you know he's writing the Lost Tales and then he puts it aside for a while and then he comes back to it and when he comes back to it he he does a summary which ends up being a a, a pretty uh, a pretty expanded summary um, in which he is working through a bunch of ideas and changing some things and in that summary he describes. Uh, the last battle. He gets to the last battle at the end, and in the last battle, Turin Turambar is going to come back, and he's the one who kills Morgoth. Um, he kills Morgoth with his black sword, uh, and you know, so he is the one who will, in the end, uh, uh, strike the final blow against Morgoth uh, to end evil forever. Um, so, as I said, we we know that there are, you know, that there at least were times uh, in Tolkien's life and thought on these subjects in which he was thinking in some kind of redemptive terms about the last battle. So certainly I think that that's, I think that that's possible. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, Jordan, I rather agree with you. I think the Numenorians can, but won't, uh, redeem themselves. But of course, this is all that is all guesswork and speculation. But uh, but I do I I do agree that it is uh, it is interestingly ambiguous. Um, they're waiting until the last battle in the Day of Doom, um, which of course, Day of Doom that just that means Judgment Day. I mean, that's like literally what that. Well, I think phrase especially means. if you look at like assuming that Morgoth comes out of the void for the last battle, then the person that Sauron has promised them is the Master of Dark actually shows up, and, I mean, I think we can rightly assume that they're going to be fighting on his side. Yep, yep, now I have to admit, it it uh, was a long time, I mean, I read this book many times before I even considered the possibility that they'd be fighting for anybody but Morgoth, I mean, I, 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 uh, um, I was always assuming that that was the case, and I still think that that's the likeliest, um, that that's the likeliest case, but, um, Good. Well, let's just uh, we're moving towards the end here. I just want a couple things on uh, on the the sort of the 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 closing things, the fall of any, anything else we wanted to add about Sauron's fall, uh, the changing of the names, the brief references that we have to what the Dunedain get up to in Middle Earth. We'll have plenty of time to talk about that more next week, of course. Um, the ending of the uh, the ending of the Akalabeth thoughts. Thoughts on these on these last things? I think the ending of this story is kind of interesting. Um, there's the resisting, you know, we 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 end kind of end with the loose ends, right? Elendil and Sauron. Um, you know, the story of Numenor as a whole is sort of finished, but those are the two loose ends from the story of Numenor. Um, and then, so on two eighty. He mentions both of them, but then comes back on the top of 281. But these things come not into the tale of the drowning of Numenor, of which now is all of, of which now is all is told. Um, Elizabeth. Yeah, I have a question that I've always wondered about, and it's just kind of a basic pragmatic question. But um, they have nine ships, and y- you have to presume that they're not huge ships and that there aren't very many women on them and they talk a lot about how pure the Numenorian blood is so how exactly do they repopulate Middle Earth and end up with all of the people that they apparently have at the the last alliance which we are led to believe is huge. I've never understood where all of those people come from Right, and doesn't take and doesn't take place very long from now either. I mean, it's it's uh, it's we're not talking about centuries before the the Battle of the Last Alliance happens. No, I, I'm glad you asked that. I was really puzzled by that for a long time. I remember uh, being very confused by this. On the one hand, being told of the establishment of the kingdom. I mean, when you read it in uh, in Appendix A of the Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, you you uh, in the Return of the King. You get the sense of like them them landing and establishing these wide kingdoms and everything, and I remember thinking that exact same thing, being like, first of all, so what? Nine boatload, nine boatloads of guys establish two kingdoms stretched over hundreds and hundreds of miles. Um, how are they building cities? How are they building? The, I mean, like, what what what's going on here? Um, the answer, though, is fairly simple um and that is it's not just the nine guys um 
Remember we've been told that the faithful for a while have been fleeing Numenor and going to Middle-earth, and that uh, there are havens of the faithful that have been already there. So there's already actually a whole bunch of Numenorians and Numenorian descendants, probably now already like second and third generation uh, Numenorians who are still of Numenorian descent and from Numenorian parentage, but have been born and, and raised in Middle-earth. They're already over there. Um, Elendil and uh, Isildur and Inarion are like the last wave uh, coming in. And when they come in, they are the, the the rulers. They they take over. They are acknowledged because Elendil is the is now the last heir of Elros uh, surviving, not in the kingly line, of course, as we know, but a direct descendant. Um, so so I do think that uh, um, there is. He gives an explanation for that, um, which which is which is I think in the end pretty satisfying. But yeah, there are more people, and presumably women folk too. So so uh, so we don't have a problem establishing pretty quickly some pretty wide and apparently powerful kingdoms uh, right away. Uh, when we see the ships come back, should we be thinking of the nine um, rings? Uh, I mean that like they're literally sending back nine ships to fight against the nine rings that Sauron still has the nine men that like that the nine nine evil men are they the nine good men that are coming back to fight I mean obviously it's nine ships and not nine men but I mean should we be thinking of- yeah it's a good question I don't know if that the text doesn't seem to me to really insist on that parallel. I mean, I agree, the number nine does kind of jump out in that way, and especially since we know that, uh, you know, Sauron is going to be their main target when they get back, and he's got his, you know, his his nine ringwraiths, um, that certainly, that parallel does kind of suggest itself, but I don't... I don't really see it that way. I mean, like, for instance, the way that the nine, you know, the Fellowship of the Ring, the nine members of the Fellowship, you know, the nine walkers are to, you know, to be set against the nine riders who are evil. Um, I don't think, I don't see that kind of parallelism there, that kind of, you know, and this is the response to Sauron, mostly because the Rings of Power are kind of irrelevant to the Numenor story. Um, It's... It's not even obvious that Elendil really knows or particularly cares much about the rings of power. Sauron doesn't have his ring with him uh, uh, in Numenor. He's left it behind in Mordor. We're told when he returns to Mordor that he takes up again his ring, um, which apparently he kept locked somewhere very, very secure uh, in the Dark Tower. But, um, but yeah, he he he's the rings themselves have not yet really worked their way into prominently um, a central role in the story of Elendil and the Numenorians. It's going to now, of course, and this is actually one of the things that I think makes Isildur an interesting mark for the ring, Um, because he's not really thinking about it. This is not... The war isn't about the ring to them. Um, The war is just about defeating Sauron. The 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 War of the Ring, as it is called in the Lord of the Rings, is is a completely ring-eccentric phenomenon. I mean, everybody's focused on the ring because they know this is the only chance that they have to defeat Sauron. That wasn't the case um, in the in the first 
in the first time around, that is in the in the War of the Last Alliance, they planned to, and in fact did, take him down at full strength, in person, while he's wielding the Ring of Power. So it wasn't about the ring with them. And so, I mean, I, these are the reasons that kind of disincline me to make that kind of an explicit connection there. But... um uh, but yeah, I, Chris, I agree with the comment that you just made in the text there. Nine is just one of those mystic numbers that recur. I mean, nine is clearly a powerful number and an important number. Um, I guess you could say, in a sense, it's connected to the nine walk to the to the nine riders on a higher level. That is, there are nine ships and nine ring wraiths in some sense for the same reason, but not because they're connected to each other, but just because they're both uh, the number nine, which is clearly important. Well, I mean, nine, three, and seven are clearly maybe important. It's like, uh, maybe it's like, you know, the elves, they have seven, and they're always in sevens, and, you know, like the stars are in sevens, and everything that they do are in sevens, and that the uh, the nine are, like, men, and men are focused on the number nine for whatever reason uh, that seems to be their repeating uh, numbers. Yeah, although, of course, you know, in the Rings of Power, then the elves get three. Um, but, but I mean, I agree. There certainly are a whole bunch of sevens that do pop up with the elves. Uh, um, but then again, you get the three Silmar elves, too. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, seven, three, and nine are all pretty prominent. We don't get that many nines among the elves that I can think of. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I can't think of any nines. Associated with elves explicitly, any prominent ones. I'm probably blanking on some, um, but uh, um, but anyway, I mean there are there are, yeah. I mean I, I'm hesitant to assign any sort of that specific of a meaning to it, mostly because I don't see the pattern that clearly, um, because there clearly are sevens that are important uh, to the, to the men. Because you're right, uh, Jordan. There were seven. Uh, uh, Palantir, um, and the symbol of the the House of Elendo is the seven stars too. So sevens are clearly associated with the humans, as you know. Sevens, as you say, are frequently associated with the elves, but three is also associated with the elves a lot, and seven gets associated with the dwarves as well. So I mean, it's 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 kind of it's a little too all over the place for me to uh to really kind of put my finger on it but there but there it's pretty clear that the um it's pretty clear that the those numbers are themselves important and interesting treebeard has seven toes you know i mean it's uh it's all really important um anyway uh what did you think about the names we have the changing of the names. We spent some time looking at the the names that Numenor is given at the beginning, right? We get, of course, a whole list of names. It's not it's not enough just to say that it was called that it was called Numenore. We're also told, you know, all the other things that it's called, right? Andor, the land of gift, right? Um, I remember the first time I read this, and when I got to the uh, what is it, Adelone at the very end, I was so excited for no particular reason that it had this bizarre parallel that I actually knew and didn't realize until the very, very end of it. Yes, yes. When the uh, Atalanta is pulled out of the hat, as well as you say in the next paragraph, the Avalone, um, when all of a sudden we get these explicit through names uh, connections to Avalon and uh, and um, Atlantis, it's... Um, it's pretty cool. I, I I always think that that's a really fun way. It, 
that's always a really fun moment in class. Um, I love I, I love it when we get here uh, in my undergrad survey because uh, a, a bunch of the time, usually the majority of the class kind of skips over it because you, 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 you can always tell who has gotten kind of inoculated against names. And so when they come to a list of names, they just start skimming. Um, and so I'll go back and draw their attention to those particular names. And it's, it's always a really cool moment because the students in the car is like, oh, it's a, a fun light, light bulb moment there. Laura? Well, this is kind of a different thing than you were talking about, but at the very very end, at least in my edition, which is the the illustrated edition, um, there's three paragraphs that are indented mm -hmm. um, differently than than the rest of uh, of the tale here. So, wh what is why is that? Do you know? Or are all the editions indented, or is it just mine, or is that just a printing thing? No, no, that's that is that is pretty standard uh, for that passage. That and the the. The typographical implication here is that um, the story has ended, the primary text has ended, with the names. Akalabeth the Downfallen, Atalanta in the Eldarin Tongue, the end. Now, Colophon, we have a little we have a little extra business here. A little extra add-on, like something somebody has, uh, has written in by hand um, as a scribal note or something at the end. Um, that's pretty... That's uh, that's pretty consistent. You'll remember there was a similar thing uh, at the end of the Quentus Silmarillion. If you go back to the very end of the Voyage of Eärendil, um, we get that you know here ends the Silmarillion. If it has passed from the high and the beautiful to darkness and ruin, that was of old the fate of Ardamard. That whole passage is indented in the same kind of way. Um, so I think, especially thinking back to the discussion we were having at the very beginning about. Uh, the source and the provenance of this, of this, uh, you know, theoretically historical text that we're getting. Um, these are like, and not exactly annotations, because it's not annotating the stuff that came before, but these sort of additions. Uh, it's, it's, it's like a little postscript. Um, so yeah, no, I think that that's pretty consistent. Um, what do you make of that last section? Yeah, I I just looked at uh I just look I have a first edition and I looked at it and it's indented in the first edition as well, so it seems to be consistent throughout all the print. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jordan with his awesome first edition. Um yeah, good Mike. I I really love this this final three paragraphs. I found it lyrical, just beautiful and then almost approaching kind of a dreamlike quality. And at the same time, sort of conveying to the reader that this that, that uh, uh, this blessed realm is still accessible, and it could and reader it could happen to you like this could all this this straight road is still there, and um, just very strange and beautiful and uh, evocative, and the the fact that it ends with that image of a single forlorn sailor on the verge of death dropping away from the earth and then coming upon uh, um, the blessed realm it's just um, amazing and it 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 it, uh, it it ends the tale in a sort of beautiful way in some ways a slightly intimidating and spooky way all of these things sort of mixed together but I, I'm, I'm glad that it's there yeah yeah no I I think the effect of this as the ending uh, of this story is is really striking and really powerful. I, um, 
the the very ending of it um always really like those those last three words always really hit me um I mean, if you look back, this is another, uh, Mike, another one of these really uh, long sentences. And tales and rumors arose along the shores of the sea concerning mariners and men forlorn upon the water, who, by some fate or grace or favor of the Valar, had entered in upon the straight way, and seen the face of the world sink below them, and so had come to the lamplit quays of Avalone, or verily to the, to the last beaches on the margin of Amman, and there had looked upon the white mountain, dreadful and beautiful, before they died. Before they died. Uh, <laughs> we can't just end it with that. I mean, dreadful and beautiful. Surely that would have been enough, right? You know, to we were getting that. Okay, we were getting beautiful, right? And the whole face of the world sinking below them sounded dreadful in the old in the old sense, um, awe-inspiring and uh, and and inspiring uh, a kind of a numinous fear. But then before they died, right? That this is always a fatal experience. Um, it's it's nice, but it's but it's brief. Um, and uh, yes, yes, Jordan, as you say, this is uh, Bilbo and Frodo are dead. Yes, exactly. That does emphasize that. Um, but but no, I mean, I think that it's that and and that's the final note. You know that even this straight road, it still exists. And it is possible sometimes, by some fate or grace or favor of the Valar, all those ores, we don't know exactly why it happens. It could be for any of these reasons. But um, this is not just a blessing. It is a blessing, but it's not just a blessing. Um, The door, the way, is still shut. Uh, You know, Elizabeth, now that that you've gotten me thinking about the Oathbreakers, now I'm thinking about the Paths of the Dead uh, and and, uh, poor Brago, who dies trying to fulfill his oath to to walk the Paths of the Dead. Um, The way is shut, um, and even those who are permitted in don't really make it, um, and they don't find immortality by any sense. In fact, quite the contrary. Laura? Yeah, I was just going to say the... um by some favor of the Valar. Well, it doesn't seem like a big favor since, you know, it kills them, basically, too. Beats to drowning, though. So, well, I that's true. At least you see, get to see some really cool stuff before you go. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I mean, I wonder, is uh, are these just sailors going along and all of a sudden they just happen to hit this the straight path? Or is it uh, the Valar saying, "Oh, you know, let's uh, let's let these guys in. What the heck?" And um, and how does anyone know that if they all die before they <laughs> before they get back? Yeah, you know? no. This is another one of those um, another one of those it is said passages. You know, tales and rumors arose along the shores of the sea concerning mariners and men forlorn upon the water. Um, yeah, no, no one's come back to say this. Um, they. We have this uh, this wonderful kind of combination where, on the one hand, just earlier on in this paragraph, we're told that a a a logical deduction has been made. Um, therefore, the lore masters of men said that a straight road must still be for those that were permitted to find it. So, uh, the wise and learned among men have drawn the rational conclusion. That the straight road, they have, they have philosophically proven the existence of the straight road. Um, 
so that's sort of on the one hand the learned conclusions uh, of uh, you know the learned and rational conclusions of the lore master, and then that is being coupled with tales and rumors arising along the shore of the sea, um, uh, among mariners and people who live who live on the sea. So um, you've got both of those things, just these stories uh, and and the lore, and the combination of those two things brings about these these tales and rumors um, that this does happen. Um, but that to me makes it the more fascinating. You'd think if, if this were just stories popping up um, among men, that there's this miraculous thing that does sometimes happen that can happen, that people are transported and they find their way. They suddenly find themselves in Avalon. They suddenly find themselves in fairy capital F Well, you'd think that maybe these would be good stories, right? Like that, the, the you know, pie-in-the-sky stories of like, and then they found the land of youth and lived forever and ever and were very happy. Well, I just thought of something. It could be that um, some of them kind of stumbled their way home and then just told their story and just died. And then died. died. It doesn't say <laughs> right. exactly when they died. <laughs> right. You know. Right. Don't think they died instantly. I don't know. It doesn't say died instantly, so maybe some <laughs> of them were able to get back and, you know in very dramatic fashion sort of hoarsely whisper their story on the beach before they pass away. <laughs> Why does this for some reason make me think of, you know, the castle of... Uh... Anyway, perhaps that's just me. I don't know. Mike? I wanted to mention that I think Tolkien mentioned that one of his goals was to undo the kind of Victorian uh, sentiment of, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could visit where the fairies live? And, you know, there's plenty of places to point to where you can say, okay, you know, mission accomplished. Having read this, uh, you know, I will not fall <laughs> fall into that Victorian fantasy ever again. Right. And the other, so I think this this is one of those times. And then the other thing I like is that uh, I like the fact that there's no easy way to get to the straight road. It's not pinpointed, like you said, in other stories in these kind of genres sometimes you have the the statement you know if you're young at heart or if you do this or do that or you know or or you can make it but not in not in this in this story and not in this uh not in this in the way that this uh mythology is created and i, I prefer it that way yeah yeah both of those things are great points this is not it is clearly not a reward for action, at least not consistently a reward. Um, but it's, it is the, you know, <clears throat> and not that it's random either. I mean, great fate is one of the things mentioned as well, you know, one of the, one of the explanations of it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I think that this is, and your first point is, is I think a really important one. This, in my mind, is one of the passages I would point to. You know, if somebody wanted to say, well, you know, okay, I've heard, you know, people say that one of the things that Tolkien was trying to do in his mythological stories is to, uh, you know, kind of correct some of the misunderstandings, you know, or the, the some of the ideas about fairies and about fairy that had grown up in recent, in, in you know, in, in the generation or two before him, or actually the several hundred years before him. Um, 
Of course, I would point them to many of the things that he says in his essay on fairy stories. But, you know, this is another passage that I think would be great to send them to, Mike, for exactly the reasons that you said. Um, this is not, wouldn't it be great to go to fairy? Um, well, actually, no, it would be a very, very serious thing. But at the same time, it's not like the wonder and the desire of it is not there, right? I mean, there is still a sense, even these guys, these these lost sailors who are being killed by the sight of the White Mountain, it, it there's this is still grace or favor of the Valar. This is still a good thing. This is still a blessing that they're getting. Um that they come verily to the last beaches on the margin of Amman. Um there's still wonder there. There's still desire there, and looked upon the White Mountain dreadful and beautiful before they died. It still sounds like a good thing, but not at all the simple good thing of like, hey, like, let's go to Never Never Land. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that that's, this is a really, yeah, uh, sublime, as you say. I think is, clearly there is definitely sublimity to it. Um, but it's, it is so sublime that it's actually fatal, but that's kind of a good thing. Um, anyway, I, I think that that's, um, and this, I think, makes this, such a fascinating conclusion to the Akalabeth story. Um, remember that one of the primary things at stake, the beef between the Numenorians and the elves specifically, that is not just their not 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 just their rebellion against Iluvatar, and not just their 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 grumbling against the Valar, but against the elves in particular, was how they kept saying, hey, aren't, aren't we too among the mighty of Arda, right? Like, we're, we're just as good as you. We're just kind of like, we have at least as much stature as you do. Um, in a fair fight, we might be able to take you, right? I mean, that's ultimately what they're going to prove there at the end. But, um, but I think that here we can see this distance between the Eldar and men really asserted. Um, you know, no, no, it's not the same. You couldn't handle fairy. But that doesn't mean it wouldn't be a blessing to be taken there. Um, and so you get both sides of that asserted. But again, that gap, that distance, just like Iluvatar bending the earth and making the ban of the Valar permanent, irrevocable, uh, and almost absolute, um, we see again this, this, the gulf, literally, between men and elves being asserted here at the end. Um, and there isn't any more of this hey, we're the same and we're all, you know, we're just, uh, we're all liking on the same terms, you and I, elves and men. Um, so I think that that's, uh, I think that that's therefore a very relevant note to be striking at the end of the Akalabeth. Okay, we did it. We finished the Akalabeth and uh, next week we will go into uh, Rings of Power in the Third Age. I know that some of you want to do a lot of comparison. I know particularly I briefly saw earlier on Dave and Jordan conspiring to uh, uh, prolong our discussion of of these, what, 20 pages almost indefinitely. Um, 
uh, I really don't want to do that. We're not actually doing uh, uh, our survey of the Lord of the Rings yet. As I've said before, I do plan to do a Lord of the Rings seminar. I want to I want to go through the Lord of the Rings uh, in great detail. But that is not yet. That is not what is going to be starting next week. Um, I want what I particularly want to be looking at when we go to of the Rings of Power in the Third Age, is especially how this fits into uh, into the Silmarillion context. We're going to be given some background and then a very short summary, a very short summary of the Lord of the Rings here. Um, but clearly, this is all being told in the context of the last stage of this story that we've been reading about. We get, uh, you know, we get a long section on the first age and then we get a short chapter on the second age and a short, short chapter on the third age. Um, how does it fit in what sense, you know, how does seeing this larger context from the first age perspective help us to understand or contextualize the events of the third age, which we've already gotten in, you know, in, in lots of detail, uh, in the Lord of the Rings. So, um, so anyway, so that's uh that's 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 where we're going to uh that's where we're gonna head with that. Um so thanks everybody for joining us again and I look forward to our discussion next week. And that ends the last session on the Akalabath. There's more to come though, so look for the next episode. Thanks for listening and Godspeed.